a pastor was on his way home from getting an oil change in his car. <clears throat> on the way, he decided to stop at a church member's house. After ringing the doorbell, the pastor was sure that he saw movement inside the house. He rang the doorbell again, and the pastor noticed someone moving quickly from one room to the other. The pastor whipped out a several steps to becoming a Christian pamphlet and quickly scrawled on it, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he left it wedged in the door and left. Now, when the offering was processed the following Sunday, he found that the pamphlet was on the plate. Under what the pastor wrote was written, Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice, and I was afraid, for I was naked, and I hid myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> if you Google jokes uh, on just about any verse in the Bible, you can find something pretty lame like that. Okay, so I'm Bruce. I'm standing in for uh, the pastors who are one in India and one in Bali. And today I am speaking from Revelations 5, 1 to 5, which you just read. And I've titled this uh, sermon, Why Did John Weep? If you want to write a best-selling story, simply place into your story the same elements that can be found in the true story of history. The themes, the suspense, the characters, everybody will love it. In Christianity, history is often redefined as his story, where he is Jesus Christ. And his story, history, is actually the story of the life and the legacy of Jesus. The story of Jesus is not just a story, but rather it is the summary of the unfolding history of the world. At its most basic, it can be summed up as the great battle between good and evil, or God and the devil, where in the end, good achieves a resounding victory. The book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John, the last book of the Bible, and it means a lot of different things to many different people, to churches and interpreters. At its most basic, Revelations is also the story of good overcoming evil. Today, I aim to use the text from Revelations 5, 1 to 5, to reveal part of the essential story of the victory of Jesus Christ in our world and what that means for us as citizens of the world. I pray that God will be with me and guide me in my efforts. So some context. We begin with Matthew 4, 18 to 22, where Jesus calls his first disciples. And we read, it's up there on the board, on the screen. <clears throat> As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, 
for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So John and Peter, from the readings, are two of the main players today. But to get away from the idea of this just being a story and instead it being reality, let's use the screen, the video and cameras and modern technology to go to the location of John's meeting with Jesus. And there it is up on the screen. You can see the Sea of Galilee up there uh, in modern day Israel. It's only a small lake, about 20 by 40 kilometers. And here is Capernaum, which became Jesus' headquarters and where Peter and John lived and worked. Today, it's in ruins. Well, it's been partially restored and there it is there, a photo. And this is a viewing and reflection room with a glass floor built over Peter's house. And you can also see the temple, the ruined temple at Capernaum. And this is what Capernaum looked like back in the day. Jesus was walking somewhere here when he called Peter, John and the others. The events of the gospel proceeded from here and Jesus' ministry on earth continued for about three years, including teaching, performing of miracles and signs and culminating in his death, resurrection and ascension. John and Peter were eyewitnesses to all that occurred. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples in Galilee after he rose from the grave, he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. After this, the Holy Spirit was sent by God and the disciples began to travel and spread the good news of the gospel. Great numbers of people became Christians throughout the Mediterranean world and in time throughout the entire world. But also, they suffered persecution. In his old age, and he was the only one of the apostles to reach old age and not be martyred, John was sent as a prisoner to the Greek island of Patmos, which was actually a Roman penal colony. This is where it is. It's off the coast of modern-day Turkey, but it is a Greek island. And this is Patmos. And I'd like to go there for a holiday. And this is where John is said to have 
been given the vision and written the book of Revelation, uh, which is the last book of the Bible. So just let me have a drink. So we're talking on Revelation 5, but in Revelation 4, just before this, this is a pictorial representation of his vision. So the throne of God in John's vision, a door to heaven opens up and in the spirit, John, the apostle who Jesus loved, is invited in. Once inside, he is aware of the one who was and is and is to come sitting on a throne. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. The throne is surrounded by a rainbow with the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. The one in the throne is surrounded by the 24 elders of the church, the sevenfold spirits of God and a sea of glass. Four living creatures and all the hosts of heaven sing day and night as we sang before. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the setting as we come to our text, Revelation 5, verses 1 to 5. So I'll read it again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, said John. I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, so going from verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides. So the scroll probably looked something a bit like this in the picture it had writing on both sides and it was sealed with seven seals. But what actually was the scroll or is it? And there's been a lot of conjecture by uh, great thinkers and scholars through the ages. But generally it's considered to be a deed of purchase. So it is the title deed to the earth itself. The sealed scroll is the deed of purchase for mankind's tenant possession, inheritance, and administration of the earth. The title to the earth was forfeited when mankind fell away from God in Genesis with Adam and Eve. The devil was handed the title deed. A scroll deed of purchase of purchase was made when Christ paid the price to redeem mankind's 
tenant possession of the earth by shedding his blood on the cross. And I'll try to describe what that or explain that. So in, in Jewish culture, it was possible to buy and sell land as it is for us. A plot of land was usually owned by a particular family for several generations. If you wanted to sell your land, you would write up a deed of purchase, which would be given to the new owner at the time of sale. Before seven years from the time of sale, if the family decided they wanted the land back, they could refund the money and get it back. And this was called redeeming the ownership or redemption. So Christ redeemed the title deed to the earth back from the devil and the price was dying on the cross. In verses 2 and 3, a mighty angel shouts out a challenge for anyone to come forth that is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. And all creation in heaven and earth and under the earth stood motionless and speechless. No one in creation had the authority and virtue for such a task. As the echoes of his cry recede, there is only silence. The powerful archangels Michael and Gabriel do not answer. Uncounted thousands of other angels remain silent. All the righteous dead of all ages, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, and the rest of the apostles, Paul, and all the others from the church age, say nothing. A terrible silence pervades the creation. In Daniel 4, verse 35, we read this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does not need us. He loves us. He gives us, he calls us to work with him, but he it does not rely on us. God is absolutely complete, sovereign, and almighty. As the creator of the entire universe, God has absolute right and full authority to do or allow whatever he pleases. He does not need the ego-driven, self-righteous nature of us people or anything that we think we can offer. God is the supreme authority and everything is under his control. The sovereign Lord has his angel call for one who is worthy to open the scroll, to receive the title deed to the earth. And silence stretches out throughout the creation. No one comes forward. That's why we read in John 5, 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So why did John weep? 
when no one answered the call? Why did he see? Uh, what did he see that tore him to such depths of anguish? Well, John is looking at the world where the title deed to the earth has not yet been redeemed. The deed is possessed by evil. He sees the millions, even billions of people who as babies enter a world filled with hatred, cruelty, violence, pain, abuse, greed, and all manner of horrors. Their tiny eyes dimmed by the depravity of a world without compassion or hope. Their first expectant, unblemished glances at the world shockingly crushed by an avalanche of fear. Where is the calm comfort of mother and the strong protection of father? Where is the welcome of a safe community where people are secure in hope and faith? John looks out across the ages, tribes, tongues and nations, and he gets a glimpse of the unsaved world, destitute, alone, helpless, without forgiveness doomed he weeps as Jesus wept for the sorrow of his people the doomed unsaved unforgiven people who without someone to worthy to open the scroll and to complete the divine purposes of God can live for nothing but separation from God the sovereign God whose very nature is love yet has no need for mankind unless the Saviour bring them, allows a deafening silence to fill the heavens, the earth and under the earth. All creation waits, and in that awful space, John's heart pours out to the great multitudes separated from God. Separation, which means death, even hell. Well, this is unfair, we cry out. John's heart, your heart, my heart, know of the great riches of being in God through Christ. Why can't they come too, we cry. Even some of our loved ones remain in separation. Why, Lord? Why? Can I convince you to change your mind, Lord? and fill the heavens with those millions of lost and doomed. I am crushed, Lord, by the weight of this pain. Only you can save them. Friends, we are in no position to tell the sovereign God what he should do. But if ever there was a moment for us to think about reaching out to the unsaved people around us or anywhere in the world, it's now. The vast emptiness that brings tears to John's eyes cry out to me and to you, reminding us that Jesus tells us to go out and share the good news of the gospel to every tongue, nation, people and tribe, to the very ends of the earth. In 2 Peter 3.9 we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, 
as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter was with John when Jesus called them, and Peter wrote this in his last days before he was executed. And he reminds us that we have a role to play in God's plan for salvation. God wants everyone to come to repentance and faith. And faith comes by hearing. We, the believers, have a responsibility to share the gospel. We know the vast riches we have received in the knowledge of God by his redeeming grace. Let us then take every opportunity to pour it into the silent emptiness of the world by sharing the good news of the gospel. Friends, I've tried to evoke your sensitivities regarding the loss of this world. I'm trying to evoke in you and in me a deep calling to the unsaved in obedience to the great commission of Jesus. I am reminding us that God's grace has brought us to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ and that our generosity to others is a natural response to the generosity of God towards us. But then, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The great victory of good over evil, of God over devil, now comes to pass. Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, steps up and takes the scroll. He is worthy and he is willing. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus redeemed the title deed to the earth, paid for by his blood. And from that time on, there has been a steady and continuing turning toward justice, equity, maturity, and freedom in the world. Even though the price has been paid by Jesus at Calvary, the transaction is not entirely complete, and it won't be until the final settlement, which is described in the rest of the book of Revelation. At that time, there will be no injustice, suffering, or struggle. Okay, so wrapping up. Over the centuries since the time of Christ, God's will is being done. His kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. For individuals, for each one of us, being born again by his spirit, Jesus lives in us, guiding and empowering us to live meaningful and godly lives. For the women of the creation, in God's sight, women and men are of equal worth and there has been an ongoing improvement in gender equality through the centuries. Even though we see some terrible examples of where that's not the case, in general, God is working. 
Family life has become the foundation of many cultures through the world as a result of Christian teachings of self-sacrificing love and submission for husbands, wives and children. The church, while not always perfect, has worked to raise civilization out of barbarism through works of compassion, evangelism, humanitarianism and social justice. In civil government, <clears throat> prior to the Christian faith being applied to civil government, people lived in perpetual fear of massacres and tyrants. I think that's changing. We can debate that later. God is working. Don't let's lose hope. Jesus has won the victory. Let us therefore give the glory of his sovereignty by adoring him. God's sovereignty, or God's sovereign will, orders all things. We are as nothing in comparison with him. The absolute, universal and unlimited sovereignty of God requires that we should adore him with all possible humility and reverence. He has our absolute, eternal destiny in his hands and can dispose of us or save us as he pleases. Having said that, I'll leave you today with a final word from John to contemplate for a little while. Bear in mind, Jesus is saying this to us as well. It's up on the board. John 20, 21, 23. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And I feel what he's saying there is in sharing the gospel, the spirit-filled believer has the power to declare the way in which forgiveness is granted through Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as our brother Matt prayed, prayed earlier, we do see some examples of... Uh, terror, shame, loss, grief. We could go on in our world. But today, Lord, we announce again, we declare that Jesus is victor, that Jesus is Lord, Saviour, that Jesus is the one who speaks on our behalf to God and the one who comes to us and lives in us and in our world. And we thank you, Lord, that you are working away in the world, that you have not thrown it away, that you will bring it to a wonderful, beautiful new creation. And we thank you, Lord, and we adore you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.